Welcome to Redeeming Productivity. In this episode, I'll be joined by my good friend, Dr. Peter Sammons. Peter and I both have books coming out this month, and so we thought it would be fun to discuss the writing process. How you go from idea to written final version, editing, navigating the world of publishers, and really most importantly, whether you're writing a book or just have some kind of other long-term side project, how do you manage making progress on long-term projects while also balancing the rest of life's responsibilities? So writer or not, I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation with Dr. Peter Sammons. But before we get into that, I want to tell you about two quick things. Are you a believer who struggles to manage your time well and stay organized? Well, come join the community of productivity-minded believers in Redeeming Productivity Academy. Members have access to new courses each month, monthly habit challenges, the Productivity Book Club, and live calls with me, plus much, much more. So if you're looking for that kick in the pants to really get on track for 2022, Redeeming Productivity Academy is the group for you. To learn more about Redeeming Productivity Academy and to sign up, just go to redeemingproductivity.com slash academy. That's redeemingproductivity.com slash academy. Also want to give a big shout out to the supporters of this show. I would not be able to keep creating Bible-based productivity content without the help of people like you. So thank you. And if you're getting value out of this show, my newsletter, videos, or other productivity resources, consider becoming a supporter of Redeeming Productivity. You can do so through giving a one-time or recurring donation at redeemingproductivity.com donation, or by joining the Redeeming Productivity Patreon at patreon.com redeemingprod. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Redeeming Productivity Show. This is the podcast that helps Christians get more done and get it done like Christians. And I'm your host, Reagan Rose. Well, today I have the privilege of being joined by Dr. Peter Sammons, who is an assistant professor of theology at the Master Seminary, where he's also the managing editor of the Master Seminary Journal. And he is the author of the new book, Reprobation and God's Sovereignty, Recovering a Biblical Doctrine, uh, which is out now with Kriegel Academic. Peter, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Uh, it's good to see you too, man. Peter and I are good buds. Uh, my time out there at the seminary, um, we hang out all the time. Now we don't because I'm across the country, so we get to hang out on Zoom. So kind of the thought we had today was, you know, Peter's Peter's books just come out, mine's coming out um, or has come out by the time we release this. And I thought it might be fun to maybe talk about the writing process, get the, the process of, of getting published, editing, all that, but really also the time management aspect of juggling writing while, you know, having a full-time job and all the other responsibilities. Cause I think that that's, that's the thing, even if you're not a writer and you're listening to this, a lot of us have side projects, things we want to do, and you can't just cancel your normal life to do them. And a book, I think, is a good example of that. So you get two different perspectives. And I mean, let's be honest, it's just a chance to hang out with Peter. So <laughs> so maybe, Peter, could, we could start with uh, what is your book, Reprobation and God's Sovereignty? What is that about? Yeah, well, it's it's one of those things where I never really sought out to be the guy to write a book on reprobation. Uh, just kind of, it kind of happened um, in the course of doing you know, my PhD work. 
uh, you know, I had the opportunity to answer that really difficult question, you know, what happens or what, what do we believe about the non-elect? The Bible clearly teaches election. How, what do we deal with this other group of people? How do we handle this biblically? And how do we do so in such a way that we still believe God is holy and man's responsible? And so, um, so that's kind of the gist of what the, the book is about. It's really taking the biblical look at Romans 9 and then also categorically looking at how God uses secondary causes causes um, as a means to execute his decree. And so um, helping establish in the mind of the believer, first, God's decree, his meticulous sovereignty, um, and then also establishing how God brings about that decree in time and space in such a way that the creatures still do what is in their nature and will to do. So they're not like reduced to robots, you know, all those no normal mischaracters that exist out there about double predestination. And really, so trying to answer those kind of objections while also helping the believer see that in the Bible, it clearly tells us about levels of causality, levels of responsibility, um, and how we can, you know, read scripture and, and answer that difficult question without having to appeal to something um, you know, that violates what the text of scripture says, or just our own concoction, where we thought of in the science lab of our own mind, um, you know, we get an opportunity to just, what does God tell us about this? And so that's why, um, that's kind of what the book's about. And really, like, it was just kind of born out of uh, really my own interest way early on, even in my own Christian walk, when I first was studying, you know, Calvinism and the doctrines of grace. And I actually came across Romans 9 before any of that, and I was totally like, well, wait a minute, something, something isn't with what I thought God should do or be or whatever. And so seeing that dilemma personally drove me to, to books and to studying. And, and, and I ended up having a strange opportunity to write on it in a PhD program. And so really it was more for me to learn than it was to become a book that just happened to become a book. Um, and that's kind of, I think what happens a lot of times is, is you, take things that you're personally trying to grow in and learn about spiritually. Um, you're not just sitting down thinking, okay, I'm going to write a book today. And then you just write a book. In fact, it's the kind of thing that I thought this may never see the light of day, but at least I'll have a good answer uh, for what scripture says and, and defend scripture um, when talking about the doctrines of grace uh, and that, that more thorny issue that people oftentimes have problems with, with predestination. I mean, again, uh, I think it's one of those things that everyone loves the sovereignty of God when it comes to helping loved ones get better, right? When you pray, you're like, Lord, please help my sister. She's struggling and yeah. or please God's help. in control, you know? Yeah. And yeah. you love being able to go to him for that. That's why we pray, right? Because we know he can help us. Uh, we love praying for God to save unbelieving family members and loved ones. We go to him knowing he can do that. Uh, but then once you start to press it and realize, well, Scripture does talk about election, and you start to study that, then people all of a sudden have a problem. They're like, wait a minute, you know, now God's infringing upon my inalienable rights or whatever. And so, you know, naturally people have a problem with that. So that's kind of what the book aims to do is to help people kind of uh, um, deal with that tricky issue. And and I also, one of the things, too, is, is that something that's not historically talked about, I mean, uh, when was the last time a book was written on the doctrine of reprobation, like just extensively? Uh, I think, I mean, R.C. Sproul has a great chapter. That's one of the things that helped me and is chosen by God book to help start thinking about these things. But I think you have to go all the way back to John Bunyan and John Knox before you see full volumes on just one topic regarding reprobation. Uh, 
Um, and so it's not like it's something that the every generation of the church has a, a, a unique interest in trying to answer, or it's one of those really uh, tough topics that people are scared to talk about. Yeah, and, kind of uh, avoid it. Yeah, and so for me, it was just one of those things where it helped to just kind of be able to answer. It's a culminating doctrine too. So I like to study things that are going to help draw in what I'm learning about God from all other disciplines. And so this draws in my understanding of God's immutability, God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, God's sovereignty, like all these different things, and the doctrine of salvation. And I see the work of the Trinity in redeeming actual sinners, depraved sinners. And all of that culminates in this doctrine of predestination. And it's like, it's like the pinnacle of a mountain and all these other doctrines from inerrancy to scripture, total depravity of man, free grace of God to be able to actually save whoever he wants, regardless of conditions. Um, all of that builds up into the crescendo of, of the doctrine of predestination. And so, uh, so for me, it was one of those things. It was like out of all of that other stuff, I get that culminating, you know, doctrine. So it was, it was a joy to study it. Um, and yeah, and with your book too, what a, uh, I've I had a chance to look at it with um, Josh. He sent me some of the um, stuff from it and I looked at his book review and everything. And um, how about you? Is that, uh, how did you decide to write on gaming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny. Cause like your book is so like academic and like theological and mine's literally a book on gaming for kids. <laughs> but that's why I think it'll be fun about this conversation is we're kind of. Yeah different um coming at it from different perspectives but yeah i mean again like you were saying like you, you they always say like write what you know but I, i've heard other people say write what you don't know and meaning like you write to learn you write to figure things out for yourself and that was that was kind of my thought with this book on gaming um which is is also out now it's called uh, a student's guide to gaming and the idea with that was i was I grew up like addicted to video games, uh, especially in like yeah. my young adult years when like online gaming came into, like I was able to get online. And it was only like years later that I started to like think about why, like what was it about the games that I found so fascinating? Like why, why was it that I would, I could play that for hours and hours and hours and hours, but I couldn't watch a movie for hours and hours and hours, you know? Yeah. So you skip eating, you can skip, you know, going to the bathroom, just sitting there playing. Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. And, <clears throat> and so that, that's how I got into the, to writing that. I talked more about that on the, the previous episode, if you guys are interested in going deeper on my thoughts on that, but it, it's basically why, why is it that um, the gaming gaming is so particularly enthralling? What is it about it? And what can that tell us about how God has made us um, our, our um, desire for dominion to overcome things, our, our desire for fellowship, our desire for, um, for all these different things that God made us for and how gaming sort of is a way that, that can sort of fulfill those things in a simulated way but that there are dangers with, with going there. Um, and especially with addiction, because then you don't actually fulfill those callings in real life in ways that matter. Yeah. I kind of wonder like, why did it take so long to get a book on that? You know, when I think about it, like, I, I mean, I grew up the same thing. I think Serge and the red mountain dew were like, you know, <laughs> your, your basic, you know, stuff, you would just drink that and play video games, you know, for hours at a time when you're a kid and everything. And, uh, and I'm just thinking about like, if Christianity is trying to 
they're always trying to deal with what's practical, what's the new thing, like what do we need to to deal with that's relative to to ministry, gaming, you know, addiction and kids. Far, I mean, the last fifteen years at least, if not more, and it's only getting worse. And yet, we don't have you know multiple books on gaming. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we just don't. We don't. So I wonder why it took so long to. No, I, I was really surprised by that too. And I was researching for it, which was, this is actually, this goes to like why I even decided to write it. It's like, I couldn't find like one good solid resource. There's people that touch on it in books on technology and Christianity. And there, there are different older things that have some good principles, but I, I could find very little that really dealt with it. And the stuff that did was so off-putting and negative that I would never like hand that to a kid or even I probably wouldn't want to hand it to a parent. And then they just like browbeat the kid instead of helping them to understand it. What's that hyper legalistic, you know, like, yeah, exactly. They're all evil. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to, you know, shoot people because of the violence or something. So, yeah, I, I think, I think that's a big thing when you're thinking about creating something, a book or whatever is like, is there a need for it? Like I, you know, like with your thing, you didn't just want to be like an echo. Like there's a lot of things, you know, and you've studied and you're interested in theology, but you don't want to just write the same book that everyone else has written. Like you want to make a unique contribution. That's true. It's one of those things where you're not trying to like recreate the wheel. Like I'm not trying to be novel, but I'm also not trying to write the 20th book on the same thing that's already out there. Like I'm not trying to just promote myself, which I think some guys who write on the same stuff, it's like, we have seven books that just came out on this exact issue. Yeah. And, and six of them are from you wonder. already, <laughs> you know, like the <laughs> yeah, same author right? writes the same subject over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's just because of the, the way publishing is it's, it's a, it's dominated by data because it's, you know, it is like a risk reward for the publisher in terms of money. And um, so they're, they're just trying to say, well, we know this book will sell because it has a proven track record, which is why I think it's so hard for guys to get published. Um, because they they don't believe in the content, they just believe in sales, as publishers are today. And so, like, oh well, we know that this by this guy, and so you can easily become pigeonholed, you know, um, into one area or one topic. To where author, to where contract guys are just like, well, can you do this, but in a different way, you know? So then that way they can have their own version of it for their catalog, but it's the same stuff you've already done to one degree or another. And that's why guys can get like multiple books, but all on the same stuff. And then you become just like a one trick kind of guy, you know? Mm-hmm. I want to talk more about the publishing thing. Cause I, I imagine there's people who are listening to this that are interested in, in writing and, and getting published. And so I want to talk about that more in a little bit with you and like how, how it came about for you and for me to, to get published. But first I wanted to discuss um, like your writing process, because you, I mean, you write more, you've written a lot and you're an academic. Um, how does your process for writing a book differ from say writing something shorter, like an article or even like preparing notes for lectures? Yeah, that's a great point. It even kind of goes into how I even sometimes stay for sermons. It can be for any of that. Um, when I go to write it out, like ultimately I have to have a goal of a topic. Like, what do I want to study? You know, you got to start with something. Um, and you have to have a reason for why you're doing it. So if the end goal is for a lecture, if the end goal is for like a blog post or a journal article or an actual book, um, you still have to have an idea of what it is you're going to do. And I think once you started there, then you start to, you know, read and gather your notes and, 
And for me, if I know that I'm doing it for an article, then I already have built in, unfortunately, an artificial uh, imposed on me by, um, you know, the parameters of a journal article, let's say, a certain amount of space, you know, it might be 10 to 12,000 words, which is like a long chapter. Um, but I have to make my argument in that amount of time. And so you want to have an argument that you're advancing. And I think that that's the important part at the beginning is to have clear in your mind, what's your argument and then how are you going to get there? In a shorter article, the argument is, is it has to be much more succinct, right? You have to have a tighter argument. You can have as many steps, um, which I think we live in a weird age where people can't follow logically long, elongated arguments, which makes it probably why books are more difficult to sell today, because a book is really just a really long argument, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's an making one point. Out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's stretched out and it has a, a, like maybe 20 steps to get to the end rather than like 20 chapters, you know, rather than like a journal article, which has just like maybe three or four short steps and then you're at the end. And so I think that that's, you have to have that uh, parameter in mind before you start. So like when you're writing the article, you're like, okay, I can't get into too many rabbit trails, which you're naturally going to want to do because of interest and research and reading. And, and for me, that just becomes footnotes. It becomes uh, stuff I leave in other documents to use one day, you know, or maybe it gets shuffled into some teaching notes. I don't know. Um, it's the kind of thing where as you're studying, you want to follow your interests, but you also have to remember from the beginning, what is the point of this argument? Um, is this advancing the argument? And that's the constant thing you have to keep in mind because it might be interesting to you and it might advance the argument in your opinion, but if it's too tangential, the reader's not going to track with you. And so with writing a book, I think of it in a similar way. It's just a bunch of little articles all put together, but then you have to kind of think about it as, okay, do all of these chapters, are they all necessary? They might be near and dear to me because I spent a bunch of time and learned a lot in the process, um, but are they actually advancing the argument? And there's a lot of times where, you know, it's worth leaving something in, even if it doesn't advance the argument, uh, because it's, it's so interesting, but yeah, you gotta be careful not to just leave it in because you thought it was interesting because uh, it doesn't always help the, the audience. But um, yeah, so what, what differs for me normally is uh, at some point I have to stop the research process with a journal article because I know that I'm getting way above uh, page count and word count and stuff like that. Or with a book, um, it, it's similar in that respect because publishers won't publish a 500 page book unless you're you know, someone with a really big name. So you need to also have a way to kind of like stop yourself. Like, okay, I've studied this well enough. Now I can start, you know, making my argument a little bit more clear and succinct. Um, and so that's one of the things I think that's kind of different for me. I've never been like a big blogger. So I don't have like that shorter, more even focused attention span, which I think is very uh, a skilled uh, process that guys have to have. where They have to be able to make such a good argument and be captivating in a very, very short economy of words. So with journal articles, because they're more academic, they don't have to be as polished. So that's, I guess, another difference. Journal articles don't gotta be polished at all, right? I mean, you know, we have like maybe a line editor or something like that generally, but they don't even catch all this stuff. And you're not as concerned about the, the presentation of it necessarily. Like the entertainment aspect of it, like holding, because, holding someone's attention all the way through. Yeah. And you yeah. can presuppose in a journal article because it's academic, you can presuppose that your audience knows something of the subject matter that you're writing about, right? So for example, if I was gonna write 
uh, a journal article on Romans 9 and let's say the lapsarian issue, which I you know, think would be a great journal article, right? Um, I wouldn't need to start off with, well, here's how you define omnipotence. Right. And here's or you know, start with a story. Start, when I was seven years old, old I don't worry about time. engaging a broader audience. Yeah. yeah. Where like with a book, you're trying to captivate a broader audience and keep them along for the ride, <laughs> right? At some point, almost everybody's interest in a book is going to wane. It's going right. to, it's going to lax. And so in a book, you have to try to keep them interested to carry them on through the rest of the journey to the end. I think most times people read like maybe from what I understand, six or seven chapters out of a book and they normally don't finish them. Um, and so, so as an author for a pop, more popular level book, you're trying to keep them along for the journey. Uh, where in an article, because it's just very punchy, it's very in and out. It's very, um, you know, short and succinct you, and you can presuppose they know a ton. You don't have to go into explain everything from the ground up. So um, how about with you? What's, what's the difference? I know you've written a lot of different stuff for different formats. I mean, from the, you yeah. know, when you're doing the blogs and everything. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a short form guy first. I got into blogging um, for my blog and I, I did a lot of stuff when I was at the master's seminary, I wrote a lot for, for that blog. So it was kind of, and with this, with this book, um, it's a shorter book. So it was, it wasn't all that different. It's like, I can't remember how many words it's less than a hundred pages though. Um, with the book I'm working on right now, which is a bit bigger, um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different, but to, to me, basically I, I, I echo or resonate a lot with what you were saying, like having, having really clear in your head, that central idea is essential. Like because like with a blog, I have one point to make and I'm going to make it probably in three, I'm going to make three arguments or sub arguments to, to make that improve that point. So it is an argument, the book, it's a longer argument, but I, I tackled this one, the book on gaming, like 10 blog posts. Cause that's basically what they were, um, lengthwise. Uh, so I basically thought, well, what are, what are the 10, what are the 10 things I would sit down and tell a young person? about video games, a young Christian who's wondering how to do it. What are the 10 things I would want to tell them about it? And I had like a, a, a thesis about the book, like that games are too good um, and that they're, that we need to be cautious because they have the potential to addict us. And so all of those 10 chapters just are basically making that same point in different aspects, talking about fellowship, talking about dominion, talking about the violence aspect of games. Um, and it definitely, the... I think the thing that I found interesting, I'm interested in your thoughts of this too, was my own attention, like getting distracted, like you were saying, rabbit trails, kind of the relationship between research and outlining and writing. Like, like I did, I did, I'd been researching the topic of video games for a long time, since 2017. I'd been, I had this whole collection of things I'd written on it just for myself, my own notes on it. But then it was like, how do I, how do I turn this into a, a book? And then there was, there was a lot of stuff that got left in the editing room floor because it wasn't in line with, with the point of the book. But I, I'm actually curious with, with you, do you, do you make an outline first or do you, do you research and then make an outline or is there like sort of a back and forth in that process? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think because I started off a long time ago, um, I, uh, um, it was really when I was in college, I, I realized, you know, that I probably wanted to go into teaching ministry 
because I, I saw kind of a, in my opinion, like a, a lack of, of seriousness and students, my own student, you know, colleagues and stuff at the time. And I just was, and I didn't really find what my education was giving me in my undergrad, really all that compelling. And I was like, this is what pastors are getting trained. And so I started just developing my own personal notes to like, uh, develop my own teaching and thought of everything. So I'd read through a book like Burkhoff or something, I'd outline it and pull out great quotes and just kind of start to keep this running uh, document that had all sorts of stuff. Every time I'd read a new book on a topic, I'd add it into my outline with the quotes and stuff that I liked or key texts that were important for me to study. And so I had this, this thing that existed. Nowadays, what I tell my students in class is the same process, I think, for, for sitting down writing type of stuff is once you have that key thought, it's going to be, sometimes it's malleable. Sometimes it has to be adjustable because through the research, you might realize, oh, my point is to be more focused on this text or this specific argument. And so now you have to go back and kind of adapt your original thesis statement to make it more narrow, more pointed. And so your outline also needs to be a little bit adjustable based on the research. So what I do, yeah, is I start off with um, my main point and I just, the brainstorm. Okay. How am I going to make this point? And I write it out like maybe four or five, six lines. It'll be like sentences. Those are going to be like my, my main headers. Let's say eventually I'll go back and make them more like official headers. But at first, just my thoughts of like, logically, how do I get from point A to point B? Like, where do I want them to be at the end of this argument? Do I want them to agree with me? Do I want them to be upset about something? Uh, do I want them to, want to make uh, like, people mad? <laughs> well, you know, you want them to be upset about the right things, right? And you want them to love the right things. And so sometimes, yeah, it's like, you know what? You've been living this life, not even knowing there was a problem, you know, mm -hmm. and I want you to recognize the problem. So maybe that's your point, right? Is you want to get them from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And then you start to think of the steps in between, like, so you're, then, you're thinking in terms of the outcome that you're trying to produce in the, I mean, it's similar to teaching, right? You're, you're yeah. thinking of what's the outcome I want in the reader. This isn't just an yeah. exercise in me sharing my thoughts. You're, yeah. You actually have an end destination in mind. Yeah. And it's shaped by your, by your start. Right. Um, and then you think of the steps to get there along the way. And then as you're researching, you start to fill in your research outline. I do all that before I write, I do a research outline where I just fill in the key thoughts, the key quotes, the key texts and things as I'm studying. And then whenever I feel like I've studied it well enough that I know what I'm talking about, then I can go back and kind of do that analysis, rewriting, synthesis stuff where I can start to like making it into a final form and argument. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the outline is key with the argument. Um, you know, a question I have for you that you probably would be able to give a good answer to, I think is, is really like in your own, uh, you know, ministry of writing and, and even with the podcast and stuff, um, how do you manage like the whole writing editing process? Um, like once you have your document and once you've got all your thoughts out, at least on paper or on, you know, on Word doc or whatever, um, like, how do you do that? Like, do you have an editor? Did you have help? Did you have like second readers? Like, you know, how did you end up in the final form? Like you mentioned, you had all these stuff from researching games from 2017. Well, how did you get it into its final form editorial wise and writing wise? Is there like a method that you used or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I, mine, mine's called the chaos method. Um, <clears throat> and I would just say too, just insert here, you know, Peter, this is your, your second book, right? 
Yeah, that's right. You didn't. Yeah. And this is my first, I'm working on my second. So like, we're not, we're not in here purporting to, we're just sharing, you know, what, what's working for us and stuff. We're not pretending to be the, you know, Stephen Kings, um, of the world, yeah. but, um, this <laughs> yeah. is, it's a little subjective and I, I'm sure everyone's a little different, but my, I found, I find one of the things that's su- surprising to me as, as I've, you know, been writing for a few years and now doing, doing books, it's just how messy the whole process is. Like you have in your mind that there's the research phase, then I'll outline, then I'll write a first draft, then I'll edit. But like yeah. the, the borders between those, um, discrete, uh, aspects of the process are much, um, much thinner than you might think. And so very often, like I definitely try to do what, what a lot of people will advise is where once you kind of pass research and you've got your outline, you kind of know where you're going is I try to just dump everything into that and try to write a first draft and not edit as I go. But invariably I do some editing. And when I get into the editing phase, I'm often doing a lot, especially with this, this book, a lot of rewriting, a lot of deleting and a lot of moving stuff from one chapter to another, condensing something down, um, adding additional articles that are occurring to me, even in the editing process. So I don't know, for, for me, it's very, uh, it's very kind of messy. It's not linear. And I, I, I found that you, know, you read books or you read things on how to write well, they often present it in a much cleaner way than I think the actual experience is. And for me, the, there's just nothing like just setting a time up every day where you're going to sit down and you're going to write or edit or whatever the, the task is. And you're just going to sit in the chair and work on it till that time is done and just do that every day. And eventually you get through it. Even, even if what you sat down to do, you know, you sat down to write chapter three, but you end up editing chapter two. It doesn't matter as long as you make a little progress each day. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I always, um, envisioned in my mind you know the guys who like you know i've always loved rc sproul and and john MacArthur, and i'm like man they got so many books and i'm always envisioned that what they must have done is they must have just gone away to a cabin somewhere in the woods you know and just started and started writing and have this like masterful thing where they're secluded from everybody they're just there with their books or they're there with whatever but that's not how it happens in real life you know from what i've what i've learned which again is, is still brief but it starts with for me, it's, it's so different too, than even probably how it was for you. Um, cause you don't get that secluded time. You still have no, never family. You still have a real job, you know, like you still have stuff to do responsibilities every day. Um, and, and for me, for the longest time until recently, it wasn't part of my actual paid profession to study. You know, I had to just find time to do it when I was working overnight security or find time to do it whenever I was, you know, working any of the other odd end jobs I've had over the years. But with, yeah, with editing, what's tough for me is it's like, I start off with a 550 page dissertation, you know, which nobody wants to publish. And um, nobody even wants to read it. <laughs> nobody, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. People find it even hard. It's daunting. Like it sits on my shelf, like this giant tome I could use to prop up the door. And, um, and again, it was, it was for the degree. It was for my personal growth. And, um, and I never figured it ever see the light of day. Uh, it wasn't until a company reached out to me because they had interest in my appendix, which is like the last thing I thought anybody really? would publish. <laughs> and it's literally just the, it's a summary history of the doctrine of reprobation from Augustine to the sin of door. It's very introductory. It's very, 
synthetic and then I'm kind of like reading, synthesizing and giving just the generalities of what a lot of these guys taught, pointing out differences and, and similarities along the way. It's not like a super deep or dense uh, history, but it's more of like, how did this thought impact this guy later and his thought mm-hmm. and, and who was he arguing against? And so it's just the actual historical thing. theology. Yeah. It's just <laughs> historical, uh, you know, stuff. And so after that, I now have this 425 page document, which still is way too long. And so for me with editing, it's one of those things where I've talked to guys as well. It's like, you've worked all this time. You think it's all important. Mm-hmm. You think everything I've written in here, all the quotes, all the stuff, it's all important. So it's like trying to cut your own child into pieces, right? Like graphic, not in a graphic way, of course. <laughs> um, but it's one of those things where you're just trying to, uh, you, so you sometimes for me, it's hard to do that dicing of myself. Yeah. So I actually like to actually like, delete it and hit backspace. It like kills part yeah. of you. Oh yeah. Well, and you're too close to it. Right. So yeah. there's different approaches. Like either you need to just spend time away from it for like three months or something like that, and then come back to it and start just hacking it away. Or what, you know, what I ended up doing with this most recent book, was I actually, uh, you know, I paid an editor and I said, Hey, here's the deal. Okay. Track changes a word document, ruthlessly cut this thing down. Anything that doesn't make sense to you, put a note off to the side. Cause if you don't get it, then my regular audience won't get it. Um, I was like, if, if it's too much, like I'm making a point and then I'm just making the point and making the point and making the mm-hmm. point. Yeah. And, um, I think, uh, when John read the original, 400 something page, 500 page version. That's what he said. Yeah. He just goes, you made a point and then you made it and you made it and you made it. It just kept hammering it home. And that was, that's the way dissertation's done, right? It's exhaustive and exhausting, you know, on, on everybody. Cause you're just dominating the point. Well, you need an editor to come along and be like, you know what? You made that point. Let's footnote the rest of this and move on. Or this is a point, but it's, and it's good research and it's good content, but it's totally unnecessary and just stripping it away. And then after I had someone do that, um, this girl, Carissa Aaron, who's like, well, it's not her last name anymore, but an amazingly talented editor. And so it was just one of those things where you I had to pay, you know, I paid her to do it. She did a great job and I got back and I had this track changes document and I can accept and reject everything, you know, based right. on that. And so again, it was, you know, my original stuff. And then she just was merciless in taking away things. And at one point I was so tired of going through it, you know, that I I did a save separate save document. So I had my original one, I had hers with the track changes. And then I just, I got like halfway through it and I did a a new save and just accepted it all to see what it would look like. Right. Just blindly and put it back to my original. So now I'm not even looking at that and just read through hers, you know, with all the edits. Yeah. And it was just so much more succinct towards like a 275 page, actual, you know, 200 actual 75 pages. Um, and so I don't remember the word count, but it was something originally astronomical, like a hundred yeah. thousand words, you know, and now it's, you know, this really condensed, very succinct thing. And then I actually had to go back and do more writing. But yeah, that's how the editing process worked for me. Like I didn't have the ability to just chop off my own limbs. And the editor is sort of like representing the reader, like they're, they're looking at it objectively and saying, okay, do I, do I, cause you, you know, it's hard. Like you might've think you might've thought you made a good argument or that, yeah. or that this argument needs you to keep repeating it. Cause people won't understand it. 
you need another yeah. person to tell you, no, that wasn't clear. Or yeah. you know what? Well, you don't need to beat that dead horse. It's super clear. Yeah. Well, a lot of times I think as a writer, the more you study, not even as a writer, but as a researcher, more for me as anything is the more you study stuff, the more you have this backlog of stuff in your mind that you're not even conscious about. And so whenever you make an argument, you actually skip steps in the yeah. argument because you're assuming people are tracking with you or you're assuming you were clear and you may not have even said things that you meant to say yes. in like the white spaces. Because you you're like, just filling it in yeah, in your head. Right. You're filling it in your head. And then when you go and read it, this is one of the difficulties with the editing process. When you go to read it, you read it as if you said it the right way. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? And so like that was the dissertation process was like writing editing, rewriting, writing, editing, rewriting, because, you know, you're presenting it to a group of 12 guys who are all going to kind of turn their cans on it to find all the holes. And that's the process. That's a beautiful process in academics that you get uh, with the peer review process, which you don't always get that peer review process in the general, you know, unless you send it to people like, Hey, generously, please read this thing. And Yes. Uh, and rip it to shreds for me. Rip it to shreds for me. And again, this doesn't even have a contract. I mean, I never see the light of day, but would you please spend your time ripping me to shreds? Yeah. Well, so that's what's so interesting about, about all of it too. And like, I fight with my, it's like a productivity minded person. Like I'm always thinking about like the ROI of writing and journal, like, cause it takes longer than anything. Like yeah. this podcast, we're going to produce, I don't know how long this would be an hour or something. And all it, it only takes us an hour, like to have this conversation. Yeah. Writing is like at every turn, you find it's so much time, so much time. And like, you get bored of reading your own, you read this chapter 10 times and you wrote it. So like, you're sick yeah. of it, you know? And it's like, it all, it, t- it takes like 10 times longer than you think it will. And I think that's what like, we didn't talk about this, but like the motivation to keep going. Like, I think you have to have sort of a conviction that what you're saying matters and is going to be helpful. Like, cause you're not, unless you're like a big, big author, like the, the actual money you make publishing like as like a first second third i mean you, if yeah. you if you like figure out how many hours like and what you're getting paid per hour it's it's silly um you well, get you get it back in other things credibility and opportunities and whatever but yeah well if you do it the you, way i you, did it yeah you spend more in editing paying an editor than you do <laughs> yeah actual right yeah. but that's because you were driven by you want you you wanted to make this argument you wanted to serve the church yeah. with your writing and that's what carried you through you're not you're not doing this because you're trying to get rich off of writing. You're not doing yeah. this because you just have a massive ego. I mean, you do have a massive ego, but you wow. aren't doing it because of the massive, <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, I think the yeah. motivation thing is huge because you gotta, you gotta have a big enough reason to stick with it for the long haul. If you're going to write a full length book. Oh, totally. Yeah. And it's one of those things where like, I, the way I looked at it was, is I have a job, right? Yeah. Like I'm not trying to make my living off of writing books. Right. Uh, I'm doing this for me and for what I hope will be the benefit of the church long after I'm alive. Um, and so, so it might mean the kind of thing where, yeah, I needed to pay a skilled editor to whittle mm-hmm. down something I had that was way too long. Um, and who cares if I make any money on this, you know, right? If, if people are edified, the church is built up, um, the truth is proclaimed. Um, hey, great. I can die poor. It doesn't matter. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's a, an important thing too. that, people need to consider is, you know, if you're trying to get rich off of writing, well, you better write really good fiction, you know, pretty yeah, much. Oh, true, true. Yeah. And even that, I mean, what are the, like, you what better, luck, you're you're better luck be getting into the MBA than uh, becoming a, a full-time, you know, at least a, an author of books that makes a living. Yeah. There's other ways to write and make a living, but yeah. yeah, you, you and I, I think you kind of touched on this, but like 
I, I'd always wanted to write books. Like I, I'd always thought that writing popular level Christian books, like I've always wanted to do that. Um, but I kind of like stumbled into it where somebody approached me and it sounds like that's what happened to you too. I mean, obviously you did your dissertation, but how, how did you find a publisher for your first book? And then I know you have more experience than I do with agents, things like that. But what I'm getting at here is like someone listened to this, who's like, okay, if they've gotten this far, they're probably interested in writing or wanting to write. And that's always a question. It's like, how do I find a publisher? How do I actually get this, um, into the hands of somebody? So how did that come about for you? Yeah. So, um, and it's always gonna be different based on, um, what your starting point or who your audience is. Right. So for me, I get to the opportunity to write to more academic audiences. And so the kinds of publishers that I get to try to approach, um, and I learned this along the way are much different than perhaps like with yours. Right. Even though I think we both even talked to, uh, to Christian focus and I, I would, I love them. You know, their, their whole line is great. They have such good books. Um, but it's one of those things where, yeah, the first book was kind of like, it, it's, it's a library kind of book. Uh, it's way, you know, expensive. I wouldn't recommend buying it because it's not. It's, it's something like, people cite when they're writing academic yeah, papers later, yeah, right? I think we're libraries buy it. And so uh, it has its own uh, audience in that sense. And so they saw it. I think it was on trend when my dissertation was published. Someone there saw it. And so they asked me, hey, would you consider submitting it? Now, for this kind of a publisher, because it's this prestigious uh, you know, library kind of resource, they don't pay you at all. So uh, that first book was more just to help kind of with credibility and stuff like that. But then when I decided, you know what, I really want the rest of this stuff out there. I think the church can use it. I think it answers the question that everyone I encounter with Calvinism or whatever has, especially when it comes up with election and predestination is, you know, what about the non-elect? And so I started... Um, by building a really good proposal. So I took a template off of one of the, you know, websites and I wrote up a really strong proposal where I kind of outlined who the audience was, how long the book was, just kind of answered all the questions they normally ask in a book proposal. And then I did like chapter by chapter summaries. So basically they could read the entire book in like a page and a half where I just do like a paragraph for each chapter basically. And, and I started cold sending those in to different publishers. And I immediately got a lot of positive response because the topic is one of those things um, that people were interested in. There's nothing else out there like it. But that kind of goes both ways because there's nothing out there like it. They don't know if it will sell. So people are really slow at trying to give you a contract because there's no history with me for one or the topic second. And so it makes it a gamble for a, a, a regular publisher to take it. Um, and so I think for about a year and a half to two years, I went through an editorial process with one of the publishers that I was originally working with, who I ended up not, I uh, did end up not working out, but I learned a lot in that process, but I kind of got drug along actually, in my opinion, for, you know, about two years where I had this kind of, well, if you do this, you know, and then do this and then do this. And I'm working with an editor at this point. So I'd already gone through the acquisitions guys. I'd already gone through uh, all of that. And that's really what guys should be expected is once you send in these proposals, expect either nothing and a lot of, you need to keep following up or expect a lot of rejection, right. For different reasons. And I had my fair share of those like anybody. Uh, but once I got past the, um, acquisitions phase, then I got turned over to a real editor. 
Well, at that point, I thought the deal was done. I didn't realize that because there's not a contract in place, there's no guarantee that this will ever go anywhere. So I spent about you know a year and a half to two years uh, working with an editor at a publisher, assuming that uh, we had an agreement that they were going to yeah, publish. You just needed to check a couple more boxes and then yeah, it would all be done. That's the way they yeah. presented it. They presented it like, we like this, we want this. But because I didn't know the process, I was kind of taken advantage of and really wasted a lot of my time. And I didn't know that. And, um, and it wasn't until I finally got uh, a rejection from them because, you know, they released a book, a similar topic. Um, and it was like, kind of was like, wait a minute, you know, we've been working on this for two years and, you know, um, then I decided I was told by actually Vody Bauckham gave me really good advice. Um, and I got a lot of good advice from a lot of different guys like Fesco, JB Fesco gave me great advice early on about writing for myself first to make sure I'm clear in my teaching, that I'm clear in my mind. And then just plan that you may never see the light of day, but if you just keep working at it, you know, one day it'll work out. And then I was talking with Vodi about it um, at a conference we were together. Um, I was like uh, with him and it was, you know, encouraging to talk to him. We're both 1689 guys and Reformed Baptists. We had a lot in common. And he was immediately interested when he heard that I did my doctorate on reprobation. And, and that was the same with a number of the other guys that I got for endorsements as well, which I had done all that too. I got all the endorsements and did all the stuff the editor had asked. And again, no contract. Mm -hmm. Which well, is helpful from a publisher's perspective. Yeah. If you come preloaded with some of those endorsements, say, totally. I mean, I, I've got this, this guy, this guy. Yeah, they yeah. told me, they said, oh, if you can get some endorsements and like guys who were immediately interested, read the 550 page version. You know what I mean? So I had Mark Dever, Steve Lawson, you know, uh, you know, Fesco, a number of great guys who are mm -hmm. published. And you had John MacArthur do the forward to it, which, yeah. you know, should be. Uh, Not easy to get him to do that. Yeah. Right. And, um, uh, and so it's one of those things where I had all of that and then still no contract. Yeah. And Vody was just very candid with me. He goes, look, he goes, if you want this to, you know, if you want to get, you know, kind of pulled around the street here and uh and just drug along for years he goes you need official representation and he goes you need an agent and he goes hmm. i don't do anything without a literary agent he says and he told me his history of how that kind of uh you know he had, had a very similar experience and that he was working under the kind of good faith of you know we had a deal of like a handshake type place. thing yeah yeah mm -hmm. i mean and so I'd done the same thing and told him my story. And he was like, you need official representation. And now it doesn't mean it's easy to find. And it doesn't mean that if you find a good, you know, that you're going to be able to get the agent you want. Right. Um, and so for me, it was just, you know, you have to find a good literary agent and those aren't easy to come by either because they build a reputation through their resume of representing authors and, and publishers have to take a, and they do take, a literary agent more seriously than the cold email proposals. And I think once I got my agent, um, uh, Steve Loeb, who's an amazing agent, represents a lot of guys, it was no more than, I think, two or three months I had a contract. I had two contracts. Wow. Um, and, he, and it was, you know, between two great companies. And uh, it was one of those, it was a really difficult decision, but I was just so overjoyed because first off, I didn't have to do all the email cold call mm -hmm. follow-ups. I mean, he had asked me for stuff. I'd give it to him. Um, but as a representative, he represented me so well. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he understands that world where yeah, and, you, you're new to it yeah, and he's he got the relationships content. already. Yeah. 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 And I, I, because I was working at conferences because I was doing, you know, the journal teach at the seminary. I had a lot of connections with salespeople and even acquisitions guys at other, at many publishers. 
Um, and again, a lot of good relationships were built that way. It's a lot of good networking that happened. And so I was probably in a better spot than most guys because of my position at the seminary, because of um, my connections, again, through networking um, to be able to, to, to present those directly. But then I, I realized after that kind of two-year period that this is not the best way to do it, right? Uh, mm-hmm. people, do, people do do it, um, represent themselves, but more and more you need official representation. Um, and again, I would have never thought that I'd be giving that advice if you had asked me three years ago, right? Um, because it seemed like it was a very fluid, straightforward thing, especially in Christian publishing where there's not money to be made. Um, you would have thought, you know, it's all very mom and pop, right? Mm-hmm. Very in less formal, perhaps. But then you start to realize that, you know what? Again, if you're not trying to make money on this, you're just doing it as a ministry to the church, um, then ultimately you're like, I need representation. I don't care if it's the difference in percentages, right? I mean, mm-hmm. is that it? Really? 2% is that important to you or 7% or whatever it is that your you know agent gets? I don't even care, you know? In the, the day, it's like, can I get this into people's hands? Can I get this into right. actual, like a traditional publisher? And I think just a couple of thoughts too about that as I'm, as I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head. I still believe in the traditional publisher model, right? A, a number of my colleagues get frustrated and have, and I've seen over the years, right? seen them get just frustrated with the kind of rejection, rejection, and it's a lot of work and, and the editorial process. I mean, they want to put out a 500 page book. No one wants to publish that. Um, you know, they don't want to go through the editorial, formal editorial review process because it's a lot of work. But I think a formal, like a real traditional publisher adds credibility on a number mm-hmm. of levels. They had to believe in this work enough to take a financial risk. They had to have outside readers look at this book to tell them this is a good gambit, right? It's a good return. Um, and so they're financially invested. And intellectually, you have that peer review process that goes into a traditional publisher and a piece of work that you put out there that isn't there for just like, you know, for blogs, right? For blogs, you can write anything you want, any opinion that crosses your head, and yeah. you can just throw it out there. And the whole world can digest yeah. it. You're or a self-published book too. You just put yeah. your thing out there and throw and- Nobody's evaluating it. And so we're rushing to the point where we're like, you know what? I'm going to bypass the traditional uh, because my stuff's so important. It needs to go out there. It needs to be, you know, whatever. And at the end of the day, not only do you um, get less impact, right? Because when you self-publish, who's promoting it? You You. have to promote it. So now you're promoting yourself. Well, yeah. What does the Bible tell us about just self-promoters, right? It, it, <laughs> they get rich, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> right? I guess if you're, you know, a faith healer or something, but you know, for the most part, like if it's, um, again, now you have people, a whole group who have a catalog connection to libraries, connection to, it used to be bookstores, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. um, but they built a brand that's respectable and that, uh, again, goes through that peer review process that, that validates the rigor and make sure that it's not just this crackpot's own random musings. Um, and, and I guess to ask you the same question, I mean, how did you find, you know, your publisher? Like, I love the publisher that you're with, and I think they're rock solid in their catalog. They're mm-hmm. one of the one of the best, I think, out of all the top publishers that I respect in terms of the catalog. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's really great. They put out great stuff. How did you fall in with them? Like, did you have official representation, or what did you do? Yeah. So I, I don't have an agent. I haven't for either of them and I don't know what I'll do. I'm still working on this other book. I don't know what I'll do after that. If I'll, if I'll try to publish again or get an agent or what, but 
for both of these, they sort of um, fell into my lap, which was cool. Um, and like in hindsight, it's, I wasn't trying to do this, but I can see how it came about. So with the, with the book on, on gaming, um, it, a lot of it was because I was doing things that generated relationships and opportunities. Same way with you at the conferences and the different stuff we're going to school. I was writing a lot online. And because of that, I've gotten to know different people throughout the years who read my stuff or that someone's passed it along to them and develop different relationships. And I developed a relationship with um, reformed youth ministries and they do, they do like um, conference and stuff for youth workers and things like that. And being friends with a guy over there, John Parrott was the general editor for this track series uh, that they were doing through Christian focus. And so I'd come on his podcast. We gotten to become friends and talking about technology and the Christian faith and stuff. And he just approached me one day and said, Hey, would you be interested in doing something on technology for our series? And I said, dude, I've been working on this subject of gaming and there's like I can't find good stuff out there. I would love to do something on that. And he was like, oh, that'd be perfect. That'd be so helpful. And so that, that one just kind of plopped in my lap and went through the process with them where I, I submitted a, a proposal, they requested it and then, you know, signed the contract. And then from there, they just gave me a due date and went through that. Yeah. Um, wow. And this other one was similar to that. I had a relationship with a, an editor at, at Moody and I've been, like my objective, one of my objectives has been to sort of be an authority in this world of Christianity and productivity. And so even the, the, the video game thing is a passion project for me, but it's a little tangential to the main thing I do, obviously. Yeah. Um, but because I've just been hammering away on this one topic, um, my, my friend over there, Moody, he sent me an email. He said, would you be interested in doing a, a book? And I said, yeah. And so we talked a little bit and he said, send it, here's the, here's a template, send us a proposal. So I just worked really, really hard, like several weeks in a row. That was almost all I did because I was between yeah. jobs at the time. So it was perfect timing. And I had a, a friend edit it all for me, the whole proposal, all of that, sent that in, got accepted. And we've just been off to the races working on the manuscript. And that's, yeah, this is kind of side related. And, um, but as I think about it, I mean, yeah, with what you were saying, how you kind of hammered along with just becoming a voice in this field. Right it wasn't because you're just like, Oh, I'm going to write a book one day on this. You started off as if I remember correctly, looking back at, you know, I mean, you've been making this a personal project for yourself. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you did that class here with us uh, for the Institute of Church Leadership, but even during that and before that, and even since then you're reviewing other people's, you know, yeah. work on it. You're interacting with others um, and you were reviewing other books and things that had, exactly. again, weren't you, but you're establishing by having not only good content yourself, but evaluating other content well, mm -hmm. makes you an authority. Yeah, because I've read, I don't know how many yeah. productivity books or whatever, yeah. and then written articles about them. Christian, exactly. Right? Like, yeah. yeah. And I and take, so, and this back to that thing you had said earlier about taking your own notes and stuff. Everything yeah. I read, I take notes on, and yeah. that becomes material later. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize, like, don't wait until you have a contract. Just yeah. write about the stuff that's interesting to you and take notes on it. Yeah. And realize it's a ton of hard work and it could be years or it could be months, but it may never see the light of day. You'd be content with that before the Lord. Right. I think a lot of times guys get frustrated in the process because it takes long. It's a long time normally. Um, and they just get frustrated and quit. You know? Yeah. So that's good. 
Uh, last thing I, I just wanted to touch on, which we've touched on throughout in, is this thing of time management, but you know, you, like you said, when you were doing yours, you, it wasn't really part of your, your main job. Um, for me either, I've had to carve out extra time to do it. Uh, kind of curious your process, like when did, like when specifically did you find time to do it? Did you work every day? Did you do, did you do like a yeah. sprint at the very end where you just like closed yourself off for a long time or what does that look like? Yeah, it's funny for everything that's happened in life, how, you know, life management discipline goes into everything. And uh, for my dissertation specifically, I remember what happened was I worked really hard. I was doing um, radio editing at the time and I worked really hard to get ahead. Right. And I think I got about a year ahead, which is like the furthest they had had us do out in terms of radio, which is not, which is like a light year. So you only want to be, a but few. no one told you to do that. Like you weren't doing no that for any particular me. reason, right? You would just were no, I just to be efficient. Was working hard, trying to be efficient, giving my, you know, doing my job. Right. And I got so far ahead that they were like, you know what? You need to stop working, like stop doing the job. And you're too productive, Peter. Yeah. Until we get caught back <laughs> up. And so that gave me a three month period in the middle of the summer, which is more like a lull time for our radio ministry at Grace to You, because, um, you know, John's not there on Sunday mornings as often, so I don't have to edit those. And so it's the kind of thing where I had this lull for about three months. And so what I did was at that time, I was working four 10 hour days. I had the hour, you know, hourly position there. I had four 10 hour days, Monday to Thursday, and then Friday. When I'm, when I'm at home, my wife's at work. We didn't have kids at the time. And so for about 50 hours a week, I just did the same thing. Wow. Read, took notes, read, took notes, and then eventually wrote my entire, you know, 550 pages in that, that amount of time. Um, but as I look at it even now, like, so now for future stuff, my whole life has a very similar um, uh, outline, right? Uh, I don't stay up super late generally. You know, I try not to be legalistic about it, but I just fall, I get tired. In fact, my mm -hmm. wife makes a joke. I'll have, we'll have people over and they'll be over late. And again, I don't mind. And I'll say, all right, guys, I'm going to bed and I'll just go and leave her down there with them. And it's just, <laughs> it's one of those things where my body's just done. Right. And I need to get good sleep. So I need about six or seven hours generally to be in a good mood. Right. I get moody when I'm not tired or when I'm tired. Um, but I wake up in the morning and one of the first things I do and I know for a lot of people, they'll think this is sacrilege. They'll be like, it's not, it's not read your Bible in prayer. I, for me, it's not the first thing I do when I wake up. Cause I'm not all there. Right. I'm still droggy from being tired. So what I do is, is I, I go to the gym and that wakes me up. And, uh, and I start each day that way. It's this discipline of my body. And it, to me, it mentally prepares me for the rigors of study and an organization because every day in the gym, uh, certain days of the week, I do different things. Right. But it's this uh, mental thing that I'm doing physically. And it's like, if I can do this with my physical body, get myself out of bed, go lift some weights and whatever, then certainly I can do this with my spiritual life as well. And so it's one of those things where it just becomes a lifestyle. And so for me, I have to schedule my weeks and my days of my weeks based on what my responsibilities are, just like every other adult. Right. Uh, and I think that's some of the things they're missing in actually education nowadays for younger kids is they're not taught how to adult, how to be responsible, right? How to manage themselves, like time management. And so for me, it's like, if I know I have Bible study, let's say on Thursday and I'm responsible to teach it. Um, and I know that I have class on Tuesday and Thursday, but so what I'm doing Monday, right? It goes into what I'm, so I have to think about things like I, if I have a PowerPoint that I need to have for Tuesday's lecture, 
and I want to look over my notes. Well, Monday and Wednesday, I have time built into my day to do both of those for the next day's class. It might be grading. It might be working. It might be meeting with students. It might be that kind of stuff. But then after that, I'll spend a couple hours working on my own stuff, you know? So all of my study, even my Bible study, that's one of the beauties for me. It's, it's easier than the average person because my whole sphere of life is centered around Bible study. So yeah. I don't need to be like, well, I have this regular, I'm a, I'm a, let's say an engineer and I need to find time for Bible studies. So I need to schedule, you know, 30 minutes for my Bible study. And then I go to my regular job. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have that. My, my whole day is studying or talking about the Bible or theology. And so I do have that unique, uh, because of my profession i have that unique you're not like switching modes or something like yeah, that but i have yeah. had that in the past right and so in the past when i was working security for example what i would do is, is every day when i was a student uh, you know heavy student in um in mdiv thm and stuff like that is i would um take my my reading and my assignments for the semester right it's something we should have learned in high school but didn't and i would plan out what i knew i had to have done 15 weeks from now Mm -hmm. right? Because at the end of the semester, you have all your due dates. Yep. I'd put all those into a calendar and then I'd be like, okay, in order for me to have a 15 page paper with 30 resources, that means by the midterm, I need to have at least 20 resources or 15 resources because I haven't started writing yet. And so in order for me to get that point in eight weeks, that means that week one, I need to, to read two sources. Week two, I need to read two sources. And if I do about two sources a week, which is about 30 minutes a day or 40 minutes, you know, or an hour a day, um, or I mean, a, you know, a week, even it's not even that long. I just read the section that I need to read, type up my notes, move on to the next thing. And so when I was doing uh, security, I was able to do Greek and Hebrew flashcards, you know, throughout the day and kind of switch it back and forth. So I was able to vary from book writing or from book reading and research to like memorization, um, just kind of throughout my, my day while doing my normal job. And so and I had class all day. So it was just, you know, one of those things where you had to fit in the time. Um, so I think that having a routine is very important, but it also has to be flexible, right? You can't be, in, you know, inflexible because you're going to burn yourself out. Right. Um, and so for me, with like long-term projects, again, it's in short-term projects, like having a difference. Like I always have Tuesday and I always have Thursday right now for classes. Um, and so this semester, next semester can be different, right? Next semester, I might have Wednesday and Saturday. I don't know. And, um, and so I have to have that in mind, but then still keeping my eye on the goal of, okay, one day I want to write a handbook on classical theism. You know, what am I doing this month to kind of advance that? Right. And one how can, how can you intertwine that with, maybe you'll cover a book of the Bible in your Bible study mm -hmm. that, you know, it will eventually contribute to that. Or maybe yeah. you'll, the stuff you'll cover in class or a, a reading assignment. Yeah. might have something to do with a long-term project, right? Yeah. And that's been the thing for me is, is like, I've always wanted just personally to read through all of the works of John Owen. Right. And so the way I started to personally implement that earlier in seminary was that all my assignments, when it dealt with like the doctrine of the Holy spirit, well, I'd go read Owen on the Holy spirit. And then with preaching, I was like, how am I ever going to get through seven volumes of the book of Hebrews? Well, I decided I was going to preach through Hebrews and my excuse to read through the commentary was going to be to preach through Hebrews. And so I don't think I'll ever necessarily write on any of that stuff, but I found rich, rich stuff that's informed all my theology in the course of reading it. Um, and so it's one of those things where, yeah, you just have to kind of start to think, yeah, you have to be able to have both. You need to be able to do short-term and long-term. Um, a lot of the long-term stuff is driven by, by deadlines sometimes, right? 
So for example, I can have this, like right now, I have an ongoing work on the attributes of God. I've taught the class now, you know, a bunch of times. I've been learning more every semester as I teach it. I read new books on it. And until I have a contract, I don't have a deadline to get that thing written, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those things where I don't have to have um, a hard long-term deadline. It's just, I do it all the time, just routinely, right? right? But for short-term stuff, it's like, I know tomorrow I have two classes. And if I'm not prepared, then everybody is, is not served, you know? And so I can't neglect my short-term commitments because of my long-term ambitions. I think mm-hmm. that happens a lot of times. Guys can't keep those things separate. But I also have a family, right? So I, I'm home every night at a reasonable time by like 5.30 or so. I, I don't do stuff on the weekends, right? I try to leave my work at work as much as I can. Um, now, Gabe might sometimes tell you otherwise and be like, he texts on his phone. <laughs> and it's like, well, sometimes there's things I got to respond to because the responsibility of work and things. But for the most part, I try to keep uh, to where my family is prioritized in that, like, I'm not going to skip Saturday with my family or Sunday with my family because of sometimes my own ambitions, right? And then burn out my family because I want to go be a conference speaker. I mean, I get invited to a lot of things, but you have to know when to say no to things so you can actually maintain a a healthy spiritual life and a responsible one before the Lord, right? Like if I'm gone, let's say I was gone once a month to go to a conference or go to speak at a church or or another school even, right? Which I've I've done that even recently. Uh, If I did that as a monthly kind of thing, I'm going to burn out my family. They're not going to see their dad. They're not going to see her, their husband. If I'm gone at night till seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night, and my kids go to bed at like eight or nine or whatever. And I only see them for like that 30 minutes or an hour at night. And then I'm like sermon prepping on Saturday all day. Like if, if that was my life, my family is going to get burnt out and mm-hmm. um, on me or not respect me. And I'm, that's my first ministry is to my family. And so uh, I think about that a lot and how I do my life and, or do my days. Like, so my wife would probably tell, she tells people like at seminary, she never once, maybe one time, I think, I guess I can say once saw me do homework when she was home. Right. Right. She never saw me go, okay, I gotta go spend all night studying. Can't see you. Or I gotta spend all weekend studying. Sorry. I can't see you. Right. Because I just prioritize my time and try to work really far ahead. I, I think that a sustainable type of productivity, whatever it is you're doing looks more like, like you're saying a routine and having balance. And that comes from being hyper clear on your priorities, hyper clear, like on your family, on what your responsibilities at work are and working into those, your long-term ambitions. If you want to write a book or do some big project or a side hustle type thing, you Mm -hmm. have to take all those into account, have that really clear in your head and then map those to time say, okay, I'm going to work on like, like for me, I write a little bit every morning, whether I like that has not changed. I'm working on this books. So I write a little bit more, but whether I'm writing something or not, like I always write a little bit each morning, either it's notes for myself or it's a blog post or it's something. And yeah. just that habit over time, you can produce a very large body of work and yeah. not be super stressed out. Right. You don't have to be that like, you can just be really calm, simple rhythm. Yeah. I mean, I know those guys, you you know, them too, guys that we, you know, we're sitting with and it's like their life was always chaos, like absolute chaos. It's like, dude, 
you're not even working. Like, so, you know, so many guys yeah. who had that, kind yeah. of, like a lot of guys in college are that way, you know, college kids um, who get all like super anxious. And it's like, you've had 15 weeks. The only one to blame is you. Right. And, and, and even more so, I think in pastoral training, what's alarming about it is, is like, you're trying to make an investment uh, that has long-term impact spiritually. So for me, like I read every day. I don't think there's been a day really since I've been a believer that I've gone a full day without reading something. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it's not always related to my field. And so I started to build into my habit reading fiction and I read fiction at night, which then gives me different voices, different way things are articulated, not voices in my head, but you know, you get different (laughs) authorial voices, way things are said, which makes you a better writer. Right. Yeah. And I read classics, you know, so like the old, uh, you know, Tarzan novels. I love them. They're so well-written. I mean, the immortal pen of Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, that's what <laughs> yeah. uh, they say. And I mean, wrote so well and so much. And so I read that kind of stuff. It's, it's leisure. It helps me go to sleep. I'll fall asleep reading and it's great, you know, uh, but that built into my schedule and my late night schedule, kind of not even late night, you know, I'm talking nine 30 late night, you know, nowadays. And it's just, that is a, a healthy schedule. It's maintainable and it's enjoyable. Right. So I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I'm not like so overworked. Cause I feel like too, if you give yourself too much, like if all I did was read, uh, you know, commentaries all day long, I wouldn't even have the time to mentally digest them. You know? Right. Right. And, and I would just be, burn out you know i think i'd burn out um i think a lot of people don't think about that you know like it's a long and steady just like sanctification it's this long and steady process you know you're not gonna be superman overnight similar to like what you see in the gym so i built that into my discipline it's not like i expect that you know in, in one week of working out consistently i'm gonna see results like that's not how life works you know you always put it really well i remember back when you were working on some of that stuff um, that it's a stewardship. Your life is a stewardship before the Lord, just like money is a stewardship, right? Uh, if you were spending all your money and be like, I don't have anything in savings. It's like, yeah, cause you drink three Starbucks a day, you know, well, you're not stewarding your money. Well, well, in the same way, your life is the greatest economy, uh, and the highest responsibility of stewardship you have. And I remember, uh, when you talk about that in times past, it's always stuck with me that like your time is a stewardship to the Lord. It's the most valuable time that you have, you know, it's more valuable than the economic economic stuff for sure. Well, Peter, um, I'm excited for the book, uh, reprobation and God's sovereignty by Peter Sammons. Is that with Kriegel? You can get it now on Amazon, but I think it officially releases on the 25th, right? Yeah. It's interesting. I guess they decided to, they, you know, Amazon does their own release. They're like, you know what? It's released now. So when you're that I, big, you can make your own rules, I guess. That's right. <laughs> And I'm happy because people are already, you know, giving me good feedback and, and positive stuff. So, yeah, thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about the book and and be on the show and everything. So appreciate yeah, it. Appreciate, appreciate the discussion. Hopefully it's useful. I know this is a little um, specific for this podcast, talking about writing and stuff. But um, I think that a lot of what we talk about is applicable for anybody. If you want to do a side hustle or just have a um, some long-term project you're trying to weave into your life, hopefully some of this will be helpful to you. So thanks again, Peter. Um, Hope to talk to you again soon. Hopefully I'll see you soon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having <laughs> me on. Yep. Hopefully we'll see each other soon and and I'll uh I'll be paying attention to what you're doing. Keep it up. Same to you. Take care, brother. I'll see you again here next week, but until I do, remember this. In whatever you do, do it well and do it all for the glory of God.
For more productivity from a Christian worldview, check out my weekly newsletter, Reagan's Roundup. Every Thursday, I share an insight along with the five best links I found that week that I think will help you in your journey to becoming a more productive Christian. It's totally free. Just go to newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com to sign up for Reagan's Roundup. That's newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com. 